Okay, we're continuing our study through the book of Matthew. We're going to be doing uh, 521 through 26 today. So uh, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given your word to us, that we might not be lost in a sea of our own opinions, wondering what is true, wondering what we should do. But instead, you have not only given us your word, but you have sent your son to rightly, rightfully interpret it for us. Uh, so that we can understand your Torah, understand your teaching, uh, your instruction, so that we might do what is right and pleasing in your eyes, uh, understanding how to love people truly, how to love you and how to love your people, and not just replace that love with some fake love or some emotions or what have you, but ultimately to truly love in word and deed. Uh, Lord, we pray now that As we look at this passage, we are convicted to understand that following your son is far more than just believing that he died for our sins and then living however we want. Uh, That that in order to have a relationship with you through the son, we in fact must have a right relationship with one another uh, in terms of uh, the believing community. We thank you so much for all these things, Lord. We ask now that you might be glorified in what we say here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're doing chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, so just a small passage today. Uh, We talked last time about how Jesus did not come to do away with the law, but instead he came to fill it up, to, to bring it to its fullest expression. And what that's going to mean is, is that Jesus is going to look behind the mirror law and look at the principles um, and show us the difference between false Christianity, false religion, and true religion uh, that both rely on the word. They both rely on the Bible, but one interprets it to get around or at least to do the bare minimum, and the other interprets it in order to have God rule over us in every way Um, from the inside out. And that is the religion that Jesus is saying his followers are going to commit themselves to versus the religion of the Pharisees, which is uh, the, uh, the former. So let's go ahead and read the passage now. You have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder and whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is wrathful toward a brother will be subjected to judgment. And whoever insults a brother will be brought before the Supreme Council, and whoever says fool will be sent to the fiery hell. So then, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the warden and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. All right, so um, now we begin with the statement. I want you to notice a lot of people interpret this text and the text that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount to be Jesus contradicting the law, that the law said something, but Jesus is now going to give us a different law. Well, he just said earlier, and we talked about last week, that that's not what he's doing. He's actually fulfilling the law. 
Uh, he is bringing it to its fullest expression. And what he means by that is not that he merely fulfills the law and you go your own way and do whatever you want because Jesus did all that for you. So don't you worry about doing the law. His point is that, no, I've come to bring it to its fullest expression and therefore my disciples are to do it. And if they relax even the least of those commandments, they will actually be dishonored by, according to the kingdom of God. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the religion of the Pharisees that they're advocating. And they're their own lords. I'm not their Lord. They are not saved. And so it's very important for us to understand that, that Christ is not just saying, yeah, I've come to fulfill the law, meaning I myself, but not my, my people. My people don't need to worry about fulfilling the law or bringing it to its fullest expression in their daily lives. And so he's going to argue that, no, his people, his true disciples actually do this. So I want you to notice that instead of contradicting the law, each time is the phrase uh, "ekusata hati erethe uh, tois." Uh, sorry, that erethe, and that's that's the uh, common phrase. There's a shortened erethe uh, in there, but ultimately, it's you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said, uh, or it was said is the shortened form that we're going to get a couple times. It was said is talking about the tradition, the interpretive tradition that you have in the rabbis. The rabbis has said this. You, you've heard it interpreted this way. And what you'll notice is, is that sometimes it's just going to be the law that people are saying, yeah, you, you shall not murder. And it's kind of like, okay, well, that's what the law says. So what's Jesus saying? Why is he contradicting the law? No, of course not. What he's actually saying is that people interpret the law as just murder, and that's it. Physical murder, no more. And that's the way a lot of the rabbinical teaching was, trying to just say, yeah, you know, as long as you don't murder, you're good. And of course, then you can go off and do all sorts of things that, according to the Bible, are connected to the sin of murder. But because they're not explicitly the physical murder... Somehow you're a-okay. And again, that's the religion of the Pharisees because it's trying to just technically make it as literal as possible so I don't actually have to expand it in any way because we think expansion of the principles of the law is legalism. Uh, we have reversed it in our day. We think the Pharisees expand the moral principles of the law and that's legalistic because now you're talking about principles and inferences from the text and the text doesn't specifically say that. And so you'll constantly have people say, well, show me a verse. Show me a verse that says I, I can't do that or this or whatever when they're talking about some moral issue. That is a telltale sign that that person has fallen into the religion of the Pharisees. The irony is they think the Pharisees expand the moral law. We talked about this last week. The Pharisees do not expand the moral law. They're expanding the ritual law and replacing the moral law with the ritual law. Now, they won't replace thou shalt not murder. They'll say, yeah, we don't murder people. We're fine. Except that they're going to slander and, and dehumanize uh, people in the covenant community. And they're going to be at odds with people in the covenant community. And they're ultimately going to want to crucify Christ. But they're going to do it through the right means. So don't worry. They're not going to murder him themselves. Uh, they're going to try to get him killed through the Roman government. So, you know, none of, all that's fine because it's not technically murder. And yet they're a bunch of murderers. They devour widows' houses, take their livelihood away from them. These people are murderers. But because they didn't knife someone in the courtyard, they think that they're good with God. And Jesus is saying, no, no. 
So you've heard it said, the rabbis just teach it this way. They teach it a reduced law. And you might say to yourself, well, it just looks like the law. Thou shalt not murder. And the problem is, is that no, but thou shalt not murder represents a larger principle that feeds into morality in general, just like thou shalt not commit adultery is not just specifically talking about that you just don't physically cheat on your spouse. It's actually talking about being faithful to your spouse in a host of ways, even while remaining married. And the same thing with divorce. It's not just, well, don't technically get a divorce as long as you hate each other for 50 years in your house, but you never you know, sign a piece of paper that somehow fulfills the law of divorce. No, it's, it's it, it, and you know, not getting a divorce. It's like, no, the principle is that you actually be faithful and that you commit yourselves to marriage and to the vows of marriage and to the, the responsibilities of marriage. And so again, this is, we're really talking about two different religions, but they look the same. And what's rather alarming is that you do get these people who say, well, show me a verse, show me a verse, because they're looking to proof text. They want a verse that explicitly says, well, you know, uh, if you're angry with your, your brother, then that's murder. Well, until Jesus says this, there is no verse that says that. His point is that the original verse, thou shalt not murder, should have covered that. And if you loved God and you were looking for him to rule over you in every way, then you would have understood that the principle is don't dehumanize a fellow person in the covenant community. Don't take away their reputation through slander. Uh, don't, don't diminish them in some way. Don't kill them verbally. But you don't realize that because you're just looking out for the technicalities because you want to live the way you want to live and you want to be okay with God at the same time. And Jesus says, you don't belong to me if that's your religion. That's not how you read the word of God. So very important, he is not contradicting the law, he's contradicting this rabbinical interpretation that narrows the limitations of the law. <clears throat> and as we go through it, we're gonna see that people try to do this with the very words of Jesus. It's the irony of the whole thing. Um, they try to get away with like, well, did Jesus really mean this? And then they try to get around what Jesus has said and look for technicalities. And it's like, you're doing the same thing the Pharisees were doing with the Torah. You're doing the very thing that Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for and now telling religious leaders, Christian leaders and Christians in the covenant community that if you repeat this religion of the Pharisees, you are not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. You do not belong to me. I do not know you. I am not your Lord. It's extremely dangerous to do this sort of thing. Well, I want to read you this. Look, this is something that's noted by scholars. I'm not just coming up with it myself. It's Jesus is not contradicting the law. Um, and so this is from Hagner, uh, his commentary in the Word Biblical series. By means of six bold antitheses, antitheses uh, representing the teaching of Jesus, Matthew now contrasts Jesus' exposition of the true and ultimate meaning of the Torah with the more common rabbinic understandings of the commandments. In this way, the incomparable ethical demands of the kingdom are set forth. 
And in this way, examples are provided showing how the righteousness of the Pharisees is to be exceeded. The antitheses are thus at the very heart of the sermon. Having assured his readers that the radical-sounding teaching of Jesus involves no annulment of the law, but represents the goal and fulfillment of its intended meaning, the evangelist now proceeds to record some examples of this authoritative and definitive teaching. The antitheses, which consist basically of the material introduced directly by the repeated twofold formula, you have heard, but I say to you, are accompanied in each instance by illustration, application, or clarification of some kind. The first antithesis includes the most, uh, the most such material, the third, the least. In this way, the radical significance of the antithesis and the extent to which it involves a departure from common understandings of the law are dramatically clarified. So the point being there is that Jesus, again, is contradicting a common misunderstanding among the rabbis, a rabbinical teaching, this idea that we need to somehow uh, put some sort of uh, limitations on the moral law because it's difficult. Let's not expand it or whatever. That is a rabbinical, traditional, Pharisaic understanding of how to interpret the Bible. And that's exactly what you hear from a lot of people today, evangelical and reformed alike. Show me a verse is a pharisaical understanding. Show me a verse and then the implications of the verse, that's fine. But if you're asking to show me a verse that explicitly states that pedophilia is wrong or that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say are wrong are wrong, then you are of the religion of the Pharisees. Christians can look at the principles in the text and absolutely say, yeah, pedophilia is absolutely wrong. I don't need a verse. And it's not because of my intuition, and it's not because of my cultural, of my cultural condemnation of pedophilia. I mean, at the time, Greco-Roman, uh, in the Greco-Roman period, pedophilia wasn't necessarily condemned. So, so it's not assumed by their culture. So where am I getting it? Well, because of the principles in Scripture of, of the creation mandate and uh, of what is creational, what kind of sexuality is creational, what is not, and all of that. And therefore, I can also then say that even if you try to get around verses about homosexuality, I don't need the verses because we have the principle that condemns any sort of non-procreational sexuality. So my point is, is that this idea that will show me a verse, show me a verse is nonsense. I don't need a verse that condemns pedophilia. I don't need a verse that condemns birth control. I don't need a verse that condemns abortion. All of these are things that I can draw from the larger principles of the word of God. I don't need a specific verse about everything. I don't need a verse about whether or not you should uh, be on your phone 24-7. I can draw from the scripture and say, no, that's wrong. I think it's idolatry. Stop doing it. The, if you make it that way, the, the scripture can't even talk to certain issues uh, because of, of the modern technology and whatnot. So, well, scripture never really condemns me going to a rave. And it's like, yeah, but you can draw out scriptures that do condemn it. Scripture doesn't condemn me like, you know, smoking weed and taking drugs for recreational purposes. And it's like, well, okay, but you can draw out verses that are draw out principles that would condemn it. So anyway, that's, that's the idea. That's what Jesus is really interacting with. He's, he's interacting with this rabbinical interpretation that basically limits the moral law. It expands the ritual laws we've talked about before, 
But it does that because it's almost as though people know down deep that I'm not really obeying God and I need something to make me feel like I am. Um, I'm not really obeying God in what he said in terms of morality. Um, and so I need to feel religious. You know, I, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, which means usually that I'll, I'll do some things like, you know, meditate or pray or whatever. But I don't really want to obey the scripture because that limits me. That, that, that weighs me down, man. Um, that sort of idea is pharisaical in nature. Uh, Hagner continues, I want to say that the form, uh, hati arethe, uh, you have heard that it was said, has the abbreviated form arethe, of course, prior to the setting forth of a truer interpretation of the law, was a device used by rabbis. Rabbis said, you know, you've heard it said, and then they would quote some rabbi or whatever. Although by no means unparalleled in rabbinic Judaism, the second half of the comparison used by Jesus, ego de elego humin, that is, but I say to you, in all six antitheses, involve an authority that is alien to the spirit of the rabbis. So the rabbis didn't speak with that authority. They didn't say, but I say to you. Um, they would quote other rabbis. Especially, of course, where the new interpretation seems to stand in tension with the direct statement of scripture. The rabbis who never would pit their views against scripture preferred to support differing interpretations by appealing to other earlier representatives of the rabbinic tradition. Jesus's remarkable use of the but I say to you formula is to be explained by his identity as the messianic bringer of the kingdom. Um, Hengel points out that the element to you, which gives each antithesis the tonality of a, a charismatic statement, is lacking in the rabbinic parallels. It is the Messiah's interpretation of the Torah that is finally authoritative. So again, what do people do? They appeal to, well, my, this pastor said this, and this pastor said that, or whatever. But, but Jesus is saying, yeah, but I'm actually the Messianic king. I'm the Lord of this kingdom. And I'm saying to you, this is the right interpretation of the Torah. You don't get to appeal to scholars and pastors in order to contradict me or say something different. Um, so the rabbis have their multiple interpretations. Jesus is saying, that's fine. You can have your interpretations. Here's the right one. And if you don't actually follow this, then you don't belong to me. You're, you're not my disciple. You may be the, the, the disciple of some other rabbi, uh, but not mine. So uh, that's all a precursor to, I think, this, this whole section of how Jesus treats the law um, and its interpretation. And now he gets into the example that we talked a little bit about before, that uh, you will not murder. So you, it has been said to the ancients, it says, or to those who in previous generations or um, in the, the, the older generations or however you want to translate it, um, do not commit murder. And whoever commits murder is liable to, the, uh, to be uh, thrown in judgment or placed in judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or says raka, uh, you're worthless to his brother, will be liable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool, more, uh, moron, will be liable to the Gehenna of fire, the hell of fire. Now, this is interesting to us because ultimately we're kind of like, wait a minute. Um, 
you shall not murder means you, you're not even to be angry with your brother. Now, there is a textual variant that will argue uh, or it'll put the, the word eke in. And, you know, it's got some it, – it's got actually the majority of support, <clears throat> majority of manuscripts, the majority uh, textual tradition. It's got some other texts as well that are kind of earlier – um, the support for the, the fact that it's not there are, you know, it, for instance, like the earliest papyrus, I think it's, I want to say mm, 64, uh, and, um, and Vaticanus. And I think, uh, some version of Sinaiticus, I forget, maybe the corrected version. I don't remember. Uh, so pretty strong support for the earlier manuscripts that it's not there. But of course, according to textual criticism, usually like this is a clarifying thing. And usually in textual criticism, people figure scribes put something in to clarify. So there is that statement that, you know, if if you're angry with your brother without cause, uh, but the without cause is probably not originally there. We understand here that actually this is about being unrighteously angry with your brother or having wrath upon your brother. Uh, pouring out wrath on your brother, being resentful to your brother or something of that nature, something that makes you maybe bitter toward him or you're just angry or resentful. You just, you just, you just don't, you know, whatever. Um, it's not talking about righteous anger. It's not talking about your brother's sins and so you're angry with him that he sins. Uh, and, and take the other statements as well. Someone who says, you fool. Paul says, you fool to the Corinthians. You foolish Corinthians. But he's not pouring out wrath on them in unrighteous anger. He's, he's, contra- he's, he's rebuking sin. He's rebuking theology that is uh, false. <coughs> and so it's important to understand that um, this is in the context of degrading someone in the covenant community because you're, let's say, you're upset for some reason, but it's not a righteous anger or anything. It's actually because you just have a personal problem. It's not because they offended God. It's because they offended you in some way, or you just don't like them, or whatever it may be. Who knows? Um, I want you to notice what he says here. We tend to read this as, yeah, if you're angry with your brother, you, you're prone to judgment, but don't worry because Jesus covers that no big deal. That's not really what's being said. He actually is saying that um, in contrast to to people saying, well, you're just going to be getting the death penalty because if you murder, um, you're going to actually get the death penalty. That is the full death penalty, which in Matthew means you go to the Gehenna of fire. If, in fact, you even are angry with your brother, if you call him useless or like, like people say, you know, I have no use for that person. Oh, I, I don't I, I'm not really angry with them, but I don't have any use for them. Yeah, you're calling them worthless. That's what do you, I mean, that's the same thing. <clears throat> that's what Raka means. You have no use for the person. Um, rather than seeing them as a, uh, a, a representative of Jesus Christ through whom you love Christ, uh, I don't think you would call that person worthless. But because you are considering them as nothing, you are considering them worthless to you, as, as of no use to you. Or calling them fool, stupid. Again, not in the sense of like Proverbs is saying, you're stupid if you do this or that. You're stupid if you sin. You are stupid if you sin. Um, you can act stupidly. You can live stupidly. And it's fine to say that's stupid and you're, you're choosing to be stupid or whatever. That's fine. This is not, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who degrades someone.
So I want you to notice that each thing here is not something different. It's not a different punishment. They all describe the judgment of, you know, capital punishment. Um, because that's what the first one describes, that you'll be liable to judgment. That's just the, the, the lower term, right? That you'll be liable to the court. Well, liable to the court in what way? In, in the way that you will get the death penalty. So if you commit murder, you will get the death penalty. If you're angry with your brother and you're not repentant of that, you'll get the death penalty. If you call him useless and you don't repent, you'll get the death penalty. If you call him a, a moron, you degrade him in some way, you slander him in some way, you're going to get the death penalty. And what is the death penalty? It's hell. So the Gehenna of fire. Uh, Gehenna is a word that, that comes from Gehenom. Gehenom means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, as most of you already know, is where they put the refuse and garbage and they burned it. They burned it. And that's why Matthew here, he doesn't just say Gehenna. He actually says, Tain Gehenon to Puros, that is the Gehenna of fire, letting you know that it's the aspect of fire that we're really talking about. Now, um, what is lesser known of the Valley of Hinnom is that actually it was the place of human sacrifice. So people being burned, which is a great image for hell, because that is the idea of hell, that ultimately people being burned in hell. Uh, now, whether the burning is literal people, you know, whether it's literal fire, literal darkness, whatever, the idea is it's a place of chaos, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, of people, the people who do not belong to God go there, they want a chaotic, chaotic world, they want a world without God, and they get a place that's not ordered by God. And so it's not a place where you want to be. I would imagine it to be the worst that you could possibly imagine it to be. Um, rather than the best that you could possibly imagine it to be. So whatever you want, you, whatever you want to believe, that it, whether it's literal or not, it's an awful, awful place, and it is the judgment of, Christ will say later on, the devil and his angels. Um, those who follow the devil and his angels by not following Christ will also go there. And so what he's saying to Christians, to people who have a claim to Christ, to, to, to ministers who are actually, um, you know, they say, Lord, Lord, and all that, and yet there are false prophets by their fruit. Remember, we talked about that last time. This is primarily to ministers, but really to anyone who teaches at all, and ultimately to all Christians. Um, any of you, any Christians at all, from the top to the bottom, who slander your brother, you're going to go to hell. So do you need to repent of that? Yes, but how do you repent? Well, that's how we, now we go to the next section, which tells us. 23, uh, verse 23, therefore, and as Jeff always says, you know, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, so the therefore, whatever he's going to say now is linked to whatever he just said about murder, about slander, about being angry and slandering a fellow Christian. Um, therefore, uh, if you are presenting your offering or your gift, it's a doron, a gift or offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser, that is your, your legal, uh, the one who has a dispute of the law with you, while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be, pl- you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will in no way get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, um, this is extremely important. I want you to notice something here. This is, we, we often misunderstand this as though uh, if, some, if you are, are coming before God, and that's what, you know, bringing your sacrifice to God represents. It's, it's having a communion with God. If you're coming to commune with God and ask for forgiveness and be reconciled to God and everything, don't bother. If you remember your brother has something against you. Now, a lot of people interpret that to mean if you know someone who doesn't like you, you should go make friends with them. That's not what it's saying. If you know that you know uh, someone just hates you or whatever, then 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 even though you're the victim of their slander, uh, you should go to them. That's not that's not what it's saying. It's not putting the onus on the victim. It's saying if you remember that your brother has a that is a legal issue with you under the Torah. In other words, that you actually in context, slandered your brother. You degraded him. Um, you you uh, are resentful toward him. In other words, he has a claim against you for sinning against him. You're the sinner here. You're the one who has done something against him. And you remember, before you come to God in prayer, before you come to bring your offerings to God, before you go to church on Sunday, before whatever you're going to do, thinking that you're worshiping God and reconciling to God and having communion with God, before you ever think to enter and approach the presence of God, you better lay down whatever you were bringing, forget that whole idea, and go reconcile with your brother. And, and actually, in other, in other other words, go repent. Make amends with him. Go ask for forgiveness. Make restitution. Because if you don't, then you're going to go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. So we often have misinterpreted this. We often think, well, yeah, you know what? If, if you know, there's somebody in the body of Christ who doesn't like you, make friends with them. And look, if you want to do that, great. I, I hope you do that. And maybe that's what other things may indicate in the book of Matthew, but that's not what this passage is saying. That's why it says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Your accuser there is the person who has a, a legal dispute for you, that you've actually broken the law against them. Um, you know, you've stolen their oxen, you've, uh, you've, uh, done, you've, you've stolen their wife. I mean, whatever it may be, they have something against you. Now here specifically though, in the context, is that if you remember, if they have something against you in terms of what? If in terms of you've murdered them with your tongue. If you've slandered them before you ever approach the presence of God again, you must go to your brother and reconcile. The word reconcile here is only used here. It's what's called a hapax legomena. It's only used this once here. That's it. Um, the word basically, I, I like the way, I think it's Liddell and Scott who have one of the sections that, that describe reconciliation as um, turning enmity into friendship. 
In other words, you're, you're making someone who is an enemy your friend. And they're your enemy because you've sinned against them. Again, you, the one bringing the sacrifice is the sinner. He's remembering now that he's sinned against a brother and he now needs to, instead of coming into the presence of God, go make reconciliation. Um, I bring that up because the reconciliation, the idea of making a friend out of an enemy, because we're going to get to a passage later where people are like, oh, well, surely other Christians aren't your enemy. It's like, no, what do you mean? Of course, people in the covenant community become enemies all the time. There's all sorts of egos that go on and and uh, they get in the way of love. And so they you get into these stupid conflicts with people and words are said and and slander uh, goes back and forth and there's there's a break in the relationship um that is not to happen among the disciples of christ if it does there needs to be repentance if there's no repentance so look this isn't saying hey if you're perfect then you can enter the kingdom of heaven it's saying if you sin you better repent um and that's why it says make friends quickly with him on your way the idea that Right now, as you're living, that you've had, you've sinned against your brother, you're now both on your way to the courtroom, on your way to the judgment seat of God. You're actually moving closer and closer to it. And Christ is saying, you better make amends real quick before you get there, because you're about to get there. And if you get there, he's going to hand, he's going to accuse you before the court. You're going to be guilty. Uh, you're going to be thrown into prison, and the prison, of course, is hell, and you will pay up every last cent. I want you to notice the absoluteness uh, to which Christ, or uh, in which Christ says this. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, in other words, I'm not playing around. It's not a joke. It's not an empty threat. I'm absolutely saying this to you. You will in no way, again, an emphatic, ume, you will never get out. Never. Uh, ume. In, in no way will you ever get out until you have paid every last penny. Now, um, the word uh, codrantes is, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's like 165th of a denarius. So it's like this, this I mean, we, we translate it as penny. It's like the half penny. It's like even worse. Than, like it's just the lowest form of money. And the idea is, is that you will not get any mercy whatsoever. God will require of you every little bit. You will have no mercy. It doesn't matter why you said it. It doesn't matter if you think you had a good excuse to slander and demean another Christian. It doesn't matter. In the end, you will fully pay for the crime of murder by verbally murdering through slander a fellow Christian. Oh, well, I mean, it's not that big deal of a sin, is it? Well, Jesus has said, you're going to hell. I think it's a pretty big sin. I mean, does it really matter why you're in hell? I mean, think any sin that brings you to hell is probably a sin you want to avoid and repent of. This is the problem of us just you know, going through and, and having our own little list of morality rather than Jesus's list. Because it's like, well, yeah, but I, I listen to hymns all the time and you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly doing devotions and it's like, yeah, I, this is saying don't do another devotion. Don't come into the presence of God at all until you've repented to your brother. 
and made reconciliation until you've made a friend of your brother that you made an enemy by sinning against him through slander and being angry with him wrongfully, um, you will not have a relationship with God. God has no relationship with you. Now, what Jesus is saying here is not new. Jesus is actually just repeating the prophets. And of course, John will say later that, look, uh, there's a way to murder your brother in your heart, right? So like in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Well, isn't that what Jesus just said here? And you can say, well, I don't hate him or whatever. If words came out of your mouth that were slanderous, then actually you do hate that person. You've degraded them. You've hated them. You've, you've murdered them with your tongue. I want to read you some Old Testament prophets here because I, I want you to know that this is a problem that God has had with his people for which he judges them over and over again. Jeremiah 9, 3 through 9. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares Yahweh. Beware of your friends. Do not trust anyone in your clan. For every one of them is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With their mouths, they all speak cordially to their neighbors, but in their hearts, they set traps for them. Should I not punish them for this, declares Yahweh. And he goes on to talk about how he's going to burn their city and, and slaughter them. Jeremiah fourteen twelve. Although they may fast, I will not listen to their cry. Although they may offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will finish them off by sword and famine and plague. So these people who are actually uh, doing evil to the covenant community, uh, to their fellow brothers and sisters, are coming to God in prayer and asking for blessings. And God says, I'm going to curse you and kill you instead. How dare you come to me when you have murdered me through your brother? My blood is on your hands through my children. Don't you dare come to me and ask for anything. You will receive nothing, including salvation from me. Micah 6, 6 through 8. Uh, this is a verse that everybody is familiar with, but, but not the preceding, right? So let's, let's read a little bit more context. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what Yahweh requires of you, to do what is right, to love chesed, that is that you love one another, 
truly above and beyond the covenant uh, requirements and that you walk humbly with God. Remember that whole thing we talked about before. This whole thing takes humility before God and before one another. Amos 5, 21 through 24, I hate, no, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let what is right, doing what's right, justice, roll down like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God requires for you to do right toward one another. Probably the most famous of these passages is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. And he's talking to the covenant community. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are filled with blood. They are guilty of murder. And yet they want to come and worship God and think again that the ritual pleases him. Here it is stating again, over and over again, and I could quote you just through the prophets, I mean, in general, or even through Psalms. I mean, it's just over and over again. I, I, I'm not really wanting the ritual. The ritual represents the moral. Do you not understand this? And so I don't care that you come to church on every Sunday and you sing all the songs and you have your daily devotions and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. That's great. Have all that but actually do what's right and don't kill your brother. You want to come to church and worship. You want God to listen to your prayers and your, your mouths are filled with blood. And you think you get to claim the name of Jesus and that grace covers you because Jesus is your Lord? No, he's not. Not if you don't repent. Now, really important. Is it that you're not doing good and therefore you're going to go to hell and, and that's why you're going to hell? 
Or is it rather that you're not doing what's right, you're not obeying Jesus because he's not your Lord and it's him being your Lord that saves you? Yeah, it's the latter, right? No one's saying that, yeah, if you sin, you're gonna go to hell because it's all about works. Matthew's trying to point out and Jesus is pointing out in the sermon that you are saved by me being your Lord. Federal headship kicks in and you receive what I, I obtained for you. Salvation, uh, all the inheritance of all things, uh, the new heavens, new earth, everything, resurrection, all of it. Through my being your Lord. If you disregard what I tell you to do and you live how you want to live and you don't repent, then I'm not your Lord. And therefore, you're not saved. And therefore, you're going to Gehenna, the Gehenna of fire. You're going to hell. That's the point. That your lack of concern for what Jesus told you to do with your brothers evidences that you don't actually know him as Lord and are therefore not saved. That's the point. And it's a major point that we need to listen to. Now, um, something rather alarming in our own day that I think, you know, it was, it was not even on the radar, of course, in previous times, is how Christians interact on the Internet. I am absolutely amazed um, of what people say to one another on the Internet. And again, I'm not talking about being harsh when you're rebuking someone. Uh, I'm not talking about telling someone what they've said is wrong or that they're wrong or even saying, hey, you know, the scripture condemns you. You're just as wicked as this person. Or that. That's all fine. You're, you're to bring the judgments of scripture to bear on people. That's fine. I'm talking about you get into dispute, theological dispute, let's say, and the person defaults to what I think the unthinking man and sinful man often default to, which is rather than attacking in the argument, attacking the person using an ad hominem. And, and so you get in these groups sometimes and you just have an absolutely demeaning of other Christians that people are in a theological conversation with. And you walk away thinking like, even if the person was right, you kind of have a fear for them because they're probably going to hell. Um, you have this, you, you know, these, particularly these younger men get it online. And now it's not just younger men, but particularly there is a group of, I think, young reformed guys who get online and they get these groups together and they feel the authority that they can act as though they're elders in their own little community. So they can't be elders at church because they're either not mature enough, either in their doctrine or just in their character, but they, they create these little groups to where they can still have their little kingdoms anyway. They can still play church and they get to be the, the elders in this group and they excommunicate people and they pronounce judgments on people and they slander people in these groups. And, and I've said before, I was like, I don't care if you are like a 10 point Calvinist. If you slander your brother and you don't repent of that, you're going to hell. The ethics of the modern young reform movement are appalling. The Pharisees are orthodox. They're not worshiping Zeus. They've got the right God going, at least so far in terms of what is revealed to them so far. What they don't have right are their ethics that show 
that they don't actually know God. They don't have a personal relationship with God where he's their Lord. That's why the rabbis and the Pharisees end up where they are. They have the right doctrine, but the way that they actually treat people in the fellow covenant community shows that they have no relationship with that that God that they theologize about so much. And again, look, theology is a beautiful thing. The truth is beautiful, but the right uh, fruit of right theology is good ethics toward one another. The, the right fruit of love of God, the true God who has revealed himself in scripture is love for neighbor. And that means you don't murder him with your tongue. And so I have a, a fear, I'll stay out of those groups. But in reality, someone at some point needs to tell these men, look, if you slander people in this way who are believers, I don't care if you think you have a good excuse or whatever, they made you mad, blah, blah, blah. You need to repent of that. I would seek that person out because now you're going to judgment and that person is going to bring it up or God's going to bring it up and that person is just going to be a witness like, yeah, they did say that to me or yeah, they did like exclude me from the group. Who are you to exclude a Christian from a group? That's supposedly about Christians. I don't care. Well, you don't understand. This is about my theological and apologetic subject. And it's, it's only for people who believe this specific thing. The church is not for people who exclude uh, any other Christian. That shows that you're actually a false Christian. You, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, if that's a whole nother topic, I don't want to go off in a rabbit trail. But my point is, is that the very idea of excluding other Christians from a group where you're talking about truth is not a biblical idea to begin with. So then when someone comes in and you demean them by excluding them, I mean, that's excommunication. And the person feels it. It's not as though if it wasn't excommunication, it wouldn't be a big deal. But the person who's excommunicated feels it. They feel demeaned. It's very clear that it's meant to be demeaning. Because it usually happens not as a result of some calm conversation, but usually the two people are in an argument. One is like has some sort of you know uh, authority in the room or whatever, and and you get booted out. So it's clearly meant to demean the person who's booted. I'm just saying stuff that's said online. Every word you're going to be held accountable for, and Christ is saying, if you slander Christians, you don't repent of it, you're going to go to hell. You're not my disciple. I don't know you. You who practice lawlessness. You're not doing the will of the Father. You're not loving God and loving your neighbor at all. You get in a fight at church with someone for whatever stupid reason, because usually they are really dumb reasons that we get in fights with one another, or you don't like someone for some dumb reason again. Again, is it worth it? Like, are you going to be burning in hell for eternity and you're going to look back and be like, you know what? I'm kind of glad I didn't repent though. It was so worth it. No, I don't think it's worth it. Uh, If you think it's worth it, then... You're the fool in the right way of saying the term. It's not worth it. First, make reconciliation with your brother. Then you can come into the presence of God and give him any kind of worship that you are going to give him. Then he'll receive your worship. Then he'll hear your prayers. Then he'll commune with you. 
You know, we do this with our kids. I tell my kids to go uh, seek reconciliation and ask for forgiveness if they've like hit their brother or whatever. Um, and then come and I'll give them hugs and comfort them and, and have a relationship with them. God's the same way. And so we need to take this passage at heart and say, look, uh, this is the right interpretation of the law. That is, it's a larger principle than just murdering someone. You can be guilty of murder by just saying something bad about someone, slandering them, uh, destroying their reputation. That also is a degradation of their humanity. You can kill someone spiritually in that way. Christ is saying, my people don't do that. My disciples are not going to do that. They're going to love one another. And if they mess up and they do that, they're going to ask for forgiveness and they're going to seek reconciliation. I tell you today, if you have a relationship like that in the church anywhere, seek that person out. If you remember that you've done something against them, you've sinned against them, seek them out. Make reconciliation today before it's too late, before you're standing in front of God in the judgment. And then it is too late because now you've proven that you didn't listen to him in life because he wasn't your Lord and that your ego, yourself, was a greater authority in your life. It was your true Lord. And that's why you didn't seek reconciliation. Look, again, we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, and we are to uh, seek out in any possible way uh, reconciliation with one another. We're to do good to one another. We're to love one another. We're to give life to one another, not to be one another's murderers. The world murders Christians. And if you murder Christians as well, you prove yourself to be of the world and not of Christ. Again, may that not be true of any of you but also take the warning and don't take it lightly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage again, Lord. I pray that as we seek to go through your scripture and and, and through this text, that we understand that how we look at the word of God is to be one of looking to see all of its principles applied to our lives. The whole counsel of God seeking for God to rule over us in all aspects and not just in certain aspects in our life. We're not looking to just limit uh, what the word can actually correct in our lives, but instead we're looking for it to correct everything, that we might truly love you in its fullness and truly love one another in love's fullness as well. Oh Lord, we thank you for all these things and ask that you be glorified them in them. In Jesus' name, amen.